0: You're with SBS Radio. Find more great stories in your language at sps.com.au.
1: I'm Patron Tungandami and my guest is Torres Strait Islander curator and historian Lea Luigi Vidze, author of a new book, Masked Histories, Tattoo Shell Masks and Torres Strait Islander People. Welcome to NITV Radio, Lea.
0: Thank you very much pleasure to be here
1: now this book tells the story of rare masks that were taken from the islands to be traded and uh, field collectors shelves in museums in the uk and other european countries over the years from uh, the early 19th century
0: and probably the first one collected maybe in the 1830s yeah and that one is in denmark and i write about that one in the book Um, the masks are really they're really quite beautiful and There are no other masks of this kind that are known to have been made in the world. So they're really quite, um, yeah, unique.
1: They're unique and uh, they were traded because of their uniqueness and also the stories that they tell. And the journey you went into discovering these masks and uh, other fellow Reservoir Islanders also uh, went and saw them. It was quite a moving experience to you finding these masks in faraway places like that.
0: Yeah, yes, it was. And, of course, I write about it, but I I was in my 20s when I first saw one in London in the old Museum of Mankind. But I didn't come back to thinking about them in in a deeper way until I was much older. Yeah, and started working with them because I was asked to write about one that's at the University of Sydney. Uh, And that, um, yeah, and that kind of stirred up a different kind of engagement. And then I wanted to... uh, I suppose, reclaim them by write, and write about them in the way that I thought islanders might want to know about them, yeah? Because those none of those masks are in the Torres Strait anymore. They are in museums around the world, but also in Sydney and Brisbane and Melbourne. But they speak of what uh, a linguist, Ifran Barney, passed away some time ago, cause, and he talked about them as kind of keepers of wisdom and keepers of knowledge, and that's how I approach them as primary sources to try to write a history just starting with them, the, the masks themselves.
1: Yeah, not just the masks themselves, it's just a history of the tri Strait Islands because you remark uh, very rightfully in the book that uh, actually the tri Strait Island uh, history is uh, one that's. Uh, uh Really, still, we're still lacking the knowledge and history of uh, the Twin Strait Island because everything is uh, told through the lens of the colonizers and they tended to kind of uh, sidestep uh, this part of uh, the continent.
0: And it's true, what you say is, is true. And I, because I guess when I was thinking about how to write about them, I wanted to write about them not from when they were taken, but I wanted to write about their stories uh, from before they were taken. By trying to find and write the history of the masks, then I was writing an islander history of
1: place. Yeah, history of the place. You also expand on the history of the people, their beliefs and customs, right from the first contact, going way back to the Spanish explorer's time, hence the very name of the locality itself, Torres Strait, which is a name after a Spanish explorer. It's more than uh, just place. So about place, about practice, about
0: how the coming of foreigners changed things for islanders. So yeah, it's um, so yeah, there are many histories that can be told through the masks themselves. So um, some of the masks have red um, thread on them or fabric. So masks later masks incorporate things that were introduced. So yeah, so absolutely, it's it is it's much more than the mask themselves. It's it's like the stories that the masks can tell about Islanders over time, yeah? yeah. So, and of course, you mentioned the Spanish, and the you know the Spanish are one of the first people. Uh, de Prado and Torres are the you know are among the first Europeans, known Europeans, to see ma- these masks in 1606 when they stumble across them in on one of the central islands and describe one of them and describe us what they call a stockpile of of turtle shell, yeah. So 1606 is a long time before Cook passes through that region. So so with that, we get a sense of how long islanders were making um, these masks as well. It's a deep history, I think.
1: It's a very deep story indeed. Uh, but the book starts looking at um, a mask taken a- in um, 1836 from the island of uh, Ored. Uh, am I saying it correctly?
0: Yeah, um Arid. Yeah. Arid in the Central Islands.
1: And the story of these masks is uh, one that could make it into a movie, going from a uh, shipwreck to the rescue of um, two young people who were actually taken in by the islanders and well looked after.
0: You know, I think I was hoping to tell a kind of an again an islander point of view of that story because the, you know, the the biggest story uh, for outsiders was that the ship was wrecked everyone except for the two boys were killed by islanders and i was interested in how the two boys ended up on murray island and what happened to them in those two or so years that they were on murray island and that's the story i try to tell before they're both rescued yeah um and and of course and the taking of the mask is all is the is the is kind of the primary thing in that chapter uh where the mask is taken off our rid in the central islands and then Um, Lewis, Captain uh, Charles Lewis and his crew burn the entire village and leave with the mask. Um, And the masks reportedly have have skulls on them, the skulls of presumably of islanders and their enemies and also of the people that had been killed. And that mask ends up at the Australian Museum in Sydney until it's sent off to Denmark sometime I think in the 1860s perhaps, where it still is in in the National Museum of Denmark.
1: Yeah, stories of castaways were usually told from the coloniser-settler perspective at the time of the first contact. I've read stories of expeditions to supposedly rescue survivors from acts of savagery and other fantastic stories. But this time around, you tell very beautifully the events from the locals' perspective and um, depict a totally... Little-known perspective.
0: Yeah, Phil. Th- well, thank you, because I I wanted to, and I you know I have used the sources um, that are available to try to read into how, um, especially for the older of the two boys, how he's integrated into the family, how he's given, how he's given a canoe, how he's taught to fish, how he's treated as kind of a as a son, and I wanted to you know to I guess to, to demonstrate how. How people are made to belong, yeah, how people who, who are not of there can be made to belong through this practice of integrating people into families, um, which, yeah, which I think gives a different perspective of the experiences, especially of that older boy who's taken in by um, a Murray Island man and his family.
1: And they looked after. Uh, he looked after him after, just like his own son. Uh, taught him, taught him ceremonial practices, taught him how to look after himself as a young man, just uh, just like any member of the community would have been treated.
0: Yeah, there was something about that, you know, and and the whole, and also trying, wanting to, I suppose, and wanting him to stay on Murray Island, but also recognizing that at some point that you know. Um, that wasn't going, to, you know, that it, he wasn't going to be able to keep hold of that young man on on Murray Island forever. That at some point he will want to leave. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. And some of the masks, uh, the ones that are uh, really bring the most controversy around them, are the masks uh, with uh, which were adorned with the uh, human remains, with the uh, human skulls
0: yeah and that probably that one from ourdies might be this yeah the only one that had that level of um material on it that amount of human material on it there may be one or two that had smaller that ha- may have had smaller or pieces of um skeletal re- not not ske- yeah skeletal remains uh but it's certainly that one mask that is probably the one uh that re- i don't know the, so in, in it, the ver- the number of skulls on there vary from. I think from 30 to 42 in some of the records so so, and it's difficult to imagine because that skull is you know it's less than a meter tall um, it's hard to imagine it having you know 40 odd skulls on it. Yeah. yeah.
1: But there were varying interpretations of those skulls, the meaning of those skulls, why we're there because uh the aspect uh, that we normally hear, well, with the human remains, especially when talking about the history of colonization in Australia and how human remains were taken away for uh, research purposes, for archaeological purposes and all that kind of thing. But then when it comes to approaching uh, human remains, these skulls, from another perspective, uh, the, the, the stories told about them is completely off from what you'd expect and what we learn from the book.
0: Mm yeah it's um and it's it's it is fascinating that um for me that as as people went into the Torres strait they also looked and asked for skulls there's a parallel thing that is happening there that yes islanders did take the skulls of their enemies was believed to increase their power to have these have these remains uh so there must have been you know for for islanders to come across the europeans who were coming there the the foreigners who were coming there and also asking for skulls it must have been an interesting thing for them to have this soul these people who don't look like us but they also want they all like us they also collect skulls or they also want skulls you yeah? there was an anthropologist who was there in the late 1880s and then 1890s and he even talked about himself as a as a skull collector the interest that Islanders had in skulls was met with the interest that Europeans also had in skulls, for very different reasons. Yeah, as well. So that's the other thing that, um, you know, the skull of people like Pemulwuy was sent, uh, to, you know, to to England for uh for the work of you know the, r- the racial science people. Yeah. So the kind of the scientific theories around. Race and how different races develop, they were you know looking for the skulls of people from all over the world to kind of to further their kind of research. so yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing that there is one islanders and Europeans who are coming in and taking skulls, but there's a difference of ideas, difference of I- thinking about which is the better of the people because of their uh, their interest in skulls, yeah, those who are doing it for scientific purposes, supposedly. Or is it islanders who are doing it for uh, potentially for cultural purposes?
1: We hear fantastic stories of cannibalism and savagery from colonial settlers and other early accounts of first contact. Yet these human remains served as spiritual purposes and uh, more. No. and
0: yeah and sorry, just with the cultural purposes as well, one of the things that Haddon, the anthropologist who I mentioned before uh so he um, he uh, asked talked to people about why people kept human remains, people kept uh, mummified bodies or mummified bodies and kept them and one of the responses was around it's you know these people because they'd seen him with their with photographs and they you know it's in some of his writing he talks about how people have said no it's just like your photographs though they don't use that word it's like this is we've kept them in in the um kept them in the way of their likeness as much as possible because it's about having them with us um so the skulls were kept may not necessarily have been for ritual practices it may just have been for you know that these are these are the families this is my family and i want my family to stay with me yeah um yeah so there's like yeah like you say there's cultural purposes there's spiritual purposes as well yeah. for, for keeping particular remains
1: yeah when you found these uh, masks and uh, you described in very very vivid and very powerful ways uh, these uh, the emotions uh, that these uh, masks evoke to you and fellow islanders like uh Alik Tipoti and um Ken Thide, I think
0: Oh yeah uncle Ken yeah Yeah
1: yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah yeah so it's really an emotional and moving experience encountering these masks
0: Yeah they are they are there is a there is a power that I, that I think that I think they have that, and I, when I've talked about this with um, with Alec and also with Uncle Ken and a few of the other artists who've looked, who've been in the company of these masks, um, that there is a uh, you can feel their presence. It's, it's as though they know you are there. There is something about the power that they hold. Well, I tend to attribute that power to their, uh, how they're invested in the power through the way they've been performed in and the purposes of their kind of their the purposes of their making and how they were used Mm -hmm. yeah so but on museum shelves they just sit you know mute but they're really waiting uh for people for their people yeah And and they're waiting to be activated by the presence of people or the or the potentially the their use by people yeah
1: And the discovery, not discovery, but uh, telling this story and uh, also being uh, replicated. I mean, uh, you said uh, Alec himself, when you met Alec, he was uh, actually in the process of uh, making a mask based on what he had seen. And this has has spawned a movement of younger generations wanted to uh, walk in those uh, footsteps of their ancestors.
0: Yeah, that's the... um the Shovelnose Ray mask. It's interesting because I don't like people, and Alec, you know, Alec chose, has chosen not to work with turtle shell. Maybe it is a difficult thing to work with, a difficult, a difficult material to work with. That's certainly something that was said by one of the men who's talked about his work with the masks and using turtle shell. But yeah, there aren't very many artists who are using turtle shell. But certainly the masks have inspired. All kinds of other works and the making of different kinds of masks I think is you know is part of that
1: yeah in uh, one of the opening chapters you speak about the Cambridge expedition loaded as something very successful with a uh, very illustrious uh, researchers and so on but there's another side to that
0: so that's the Haddon expedition so that's the expedition that was led by Haddon who I mentioned before. he first comes to goes to the region in 1888 as a zoologist and he's interested in you know he's kind of been it's been suggested that he go there to study the coral coral reef and then he becomes interested in islanders he goes back to um, he goes back to Britain and then returns 10 years later as an anthropologist and he's committed to doing what people you know people have described as salvage anthropology because his belief is that islanders will you know will die out so, the work that they are there to do is to record as much as they can and to take as much as they can, so that if islanders were to die out at least the world will know that they existed and um yeah, and their and our existence would have been told through the eyes of of this team of um of anthropologists and or the team of the the Cambridge expedition, which included that you know. People, anthropologists like Haddon, but also linguists and psychologists and, yeah, a number of others. And it's interesting to look at because it's told from a very, you know, specific angle. They were all men, so there's very little stuff about women and women's business. It's probably the richest source of information about the Torres Strait, but it's also a source that for islanders is, is problematic, People are interested, but there's also some disquiet about the kinds of stuff that is written about.
1: Yeah, because uh, they describe people as cannibals and all that, whereas, uh, you know, the uh, amicable and actually welcoming nature is hardly mentioned. They just uh, describe yeah. as savages, just uh, bloodthirsty people. It's a horrible kind of describing of people you don't even yeah. know about, Yeah. And uh, the book also tells, touches on the history, and the culture, the spirituality and uh, the mythology of uh, the Torres Strait Islander people, including the heroes like Bomai and Manu.
0: It was important to try to give the bigger picture, I think, of place, but also Islander understandings of where the masks have come from and their significance in the lived world and in the non-lived world. So in kind of the world of, you know, the world of life after death. So I think I tried to layer that somehow and to give more texture and a deeper texture to um, to the story of the masks because it's, yeah, and I, you know, and I think others, if others were to look at the same masks and come at it with it from a different angle, you know, there are one of the, the beauties, I think, of this, of of the masks themselves and i think you know there may be over a hundred of these masks um that depending on who's writing about the mask you can tell you'll be able to tell all kinds of stories yeah they can they inspire all kinds of stories and thinking even if you look at the work of artists you you just i'm kind of in awe of how artists can be inspired by them to create the works that they that they create yeah
1: I'll come back to the title, Masked Histories, especially coming out of uh, what we've been going through in the last two years with the pandemic, mask wearing and so on. (laughs) So masked histories, when you first see the title, you may not really, it could evoke so many things except some historical facts. But when I saw it, Knowing that uh, it's about um, the story of the islands and the history of Australia and so on, I just thought, yeah masked could mean well it's a story of masks but also hidden history
0: yeah definitely that's um yeah, that is what I was going for <laughs> that it's the, the it's ant- the un it's the islander histories that aren't necessarily written of, and I really wanted to to write something that I thought i think as i said. Earlier, I really wanted to write something that about the masks that I thought Islanders might be interested in knowing about.
1: Yeah, cultural yeah. practices that did not die. That's one sentence that I uh, struck my mind when I uh, just browsing through this book. Yeah, it's a book about uh, enduring history of cultural practices that did not did not die out when Islanders were colonized. that's, yeah. uh, that's what I kept in my mind about this book.
0: <laughs> oh great! Yes, <laughs> and it is that you know. For me, it's also that recogn- recognizing that uh, cultures evolve, cultures change, and that's.
1: Yeah. Now, before I let you go, just a closing word: s- how to summarize this book? Just to, something we may not have mentioned that's really crucial. We must bring to the attention of our listeners.
0: Um, I think so. Really, writing it to to tell an Islander history. And to tell Torres Strait history from the point of view of Islanders, and I, you know, and the masks became the vehicle for me to do this. I was quite, I quite liked a um, a tweet from one of my colleagues when I gave a talk a little while ago, and um, and they wrote that um, that it was uh, that my work was taking back stolen objects from their glass casings in far off colonial museums. So, yeah, and that's, what I think, what I wanted to do. I wanted to make them ours again and write about them in a way that said, these are ours. These are our masks. Yes, they might be all over the world, but they are the masks of the people from the Torres Strait.
1: Yeah. Leah louis Civite, author of Masked Histories, Tattoo Shell Masks, Masks and Torres Strait Islander People. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today about this really very well-written and well-researched book. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Want to hear more stories like this? Listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from.